everybody. Off on. Sorry about that. In all the uh, kerfuffle, microphone on, but not that that's too much of a hassle, really. Um, for several years, we were part of a church in Leeds that had strong connection with the church in Bradford. They had a building we didn't, and they had a fire drill, and it was a nightmare because everybody was all so Christian polite. It's like, no, after you, after you, brother. No, after you, sister. No, after you. And the, the chief steward was getting very far. Look, for goodness sake, get out! <laughs> there we go. So, I've had interesting comments. People have come up and said, why don't you preach in the open air? Well, we could have done. It was a nice day for it. Uh, others have said, oh, shorter sermon today. <laughs> but the most, inc- most important question I want to know Now, come on, there is an amnesty here if you confess this. Who either did or had a burning desire to sing Isolve in the song? (laughs) There's just something in me that just wants to sing, the earth shall soon Isolve like snow. And well corrected on the fly, Steve. Very good. (laughs) uh, There we go. I'm going to, um, there we go. I'm going to put the scripture up because I'm going to read from Luke chapter 10. And then I'm going to uh, trundle through at a bit of a rate to make sure that we uh, get through. It says this, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him. Did I introduce where I was reading from? Oh, it's up there, Luke 10, verses 1 to 9. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. So I'm going to stop there. I have six points this morning. That may seem like a lot. It's not the kind of standard evangelical three. Um, there... I'll only need six more and I'll what? Be off the road. <laughs> Very good. I, I, I have to say, I do remarkably have a clean license. So um, there we go. But um, the first thing I want to draw out of this passage and the... the, uh, the Points are not equal in length, by the way. I'm going to push one or two of them a little bit more than the others. If we can have the first one up, the first one is this. God is on the move. And in our context, sometimes we can be convinced because we live in a culture that is increasingly secular, that actually Christianity is out of fashion, and that somehow Christianity is on the decline. 
That is not so. If you look worldwide, Christianity is on the advance. God is on the move. And I would say even in this nation, the signs are there. God is on the move. And what Jesus is doing here is he picks 72 people. Now, this is interesting, and I'm not going to go into the theological implications of this. They are not named. The 12 are recorded in Scripture. Jesus sent out 12. Jesus had 12. But they're named. The 72 are not. We don't know who they are. Jesus knew who they were because he sent them out. Now, you may feel that no one knows you. No one knows the impact or the effort that you're making. No one knows what you're doing. Let me tell you this. Jesus knows what you're doing. He knows who you are. He's commissioned you, and he's sent you on a mission. The fact that other people might not know your name, might seemingly not value your contribution, does not take away from the fact that Jesus has handpicked you for such a time as this. And he has sent you on a mission. Because the thing is, Jesus sent out people in advance to tell them the king is coming. And there's a few strands to this because the king has already come. Jesus has come. He was born. He died and he rose again from the dead. And we're to be sent out as heralds of that fact. Herald is an interesting word. I don't know if anybody here actually done a marathon. Whoa. Do you know what? I, I am singularly impressed. Distance of a marathon is 26 miles, 385 yards. The 385 yards are historic. They were added on in 1908 for the London Olympics so that the finish line was in front of the Royal Box. And it stayed at 26.2 miles ever since. It was ratified in the 1920s that that was the official distance of the modern marathon. Historically, it's the distance between a Greek battlefield and the capital where a battle took place and after fighting all day long in a battle, the soldier ran to take the news of victory back to his city. And he ran 26 miles in full armor, having fought all day and uttered the words, rejoice, we conquer, before dropping dead. Now, I'm not suggesting that any of us are likely to drop dead, but nonetheless, he heralded the news of victory. Rejoice, we conquer. And do you know what? You might think that we have an insignificant effort. You might think that Christianity is on the decline. You might think that Christianity and Jesus is out of fashion, given what people tell you on social media, on the BBC, and around about. Let me tell you this. Rejoice, we conquer. Jesus is alive. He is still alive. He is still powerful and effective. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is sending us out to tell people, rejoice, we conquer. Thank you. I get a little bit about excited about that. You kind, of, you, you, you kind of note that I kind of get a little bit carried away. So that's the whole thing about heralds. And you might think, yeah, but we live in a kind of slightly resistant culture. You know, I don't tend to be having a conversation with someone and they suddenly turn to me and say, what must I do to be saved? I don't know about you, I don't get that very often. Occasionally I do, but if you're anything like me, that is not the usual run-of-the-mill thing. I met a guy recently, a lovely guy called Paul. 
He used to be on staff at a church part-time. He worked part-time as a vicar, part-time as a teacher. And he was working in a church in Sheffield in the 1980s. He now lives over in the States. He was telling me an interesting story. One day he was just spending time with the Lord. And he felt the Lord say to him, I'm going to give you a taste of revival. And then we will have a period to reflect. Okay. And one day he's in his church building and somebody walks in off the street, comes up to him and says, are you a vicar? And he said, yes, I am. And he said, I really feel like I need to know God. Can you help me? Now, that doesn't happen every day of the week, irrespective of whether you're a vicar or not. I would suggest that probably no one in the last week or two or even three or possibly four has had somebody wander up to them saying, excuse me, uh, I really could do with knowing God. Can you help me? Random stranger. Problem doesn't happen. But this happened. So, share share the gospel with him, led him to Jesus. The guy is saved and added to the church. Nothing much happens then. The following month, virtually the identical thing happens. Somebody walks up to him and says, excuse me, you're not by any chance a Christian, are you? They went, well, yeah, I am. He said, ah, I'm really troubled. I feel guilt. I, I need to know God. Can you help me? So, Paul leads him in a prayer of salvation, having shared the gospel with him. The guy is saved, clearly, and added to the church. Nothing more happens for about another month. And then in the third month, the same thing happens. So this is in three months, three people clearly saved and added, just randomly wander up to him and ask to get saved. Now, this is not the norm, but bearing in mind that God has said to him, I am going to give you a taste of revival. He was then slightly puzzled when he felt the Spirit of God say to him, your season of revival is over, now let's reflect together. And he said, my exact words were, come on, Lord, that was hardly Billy Graham, was it? Which you could be forgiven. I'd probably think the same thing. And he said, the Holy Spirit said to me, he said, how big is your church? How many people in it? And he said, there's a thousand people in our church. He said, how many people have you seen saved and added to your church? You, over the last three months. He said, three people. He said, imagine if I did that with everybody. How many new converts would you have had? And he went, 3,000. He went, do you still think that's not revival? And they said, the bit that got him was when he felt the Holy Spirit say to him, how would your church have coped with that? And he suddenly thought, oops. Oops. And kind of, we long for revival. We long to see hordes of people come, but I'm going to kind of be slightly provocative. Are we ready? Can we cope with that? What would we need to do to get ourselves ready? And I'm I'm not having a go. I'm just kind of like throwing it out there because I think it's an interesting question because if we believe that God is on the move and God is doing stuff, we need to get ready. If I play golf, I kind of, Shower, change, put a golfing shirt on. I know some of you are wearing England shirts. Fine, that's great. God bless you, but I'm more likely to wear a golf shirt. And I get my golf shoes, and I've got my little list to make sure I don't forget anything. 
And if I've got a little do afterwards, I make sure that I take my shirt and tie and jacket and stuff along with me so I don't look a total prat when I turn up for the formal dinner. But, so I've got this list because I want to be ready. I don't want to be shown up. Because the thing is, this year I'm the captain, so at least I'm, I'm even more of an idiot if I don't look the part. So I've got my little list just to make sure that I'm ready. But as in the natural, so in the spiritual, there's all sorts of stuff that you get ready for. And if we believe that God is going to do stuff and we're asking God to do stuff and we're not getting ready and we're not preparing ourselves and we're not thinking, what do we do? Where does that leave us? Do we believe that God's going to answer our prayers? Well, Billy Graham came up with an interesting quote and he said, I am just a spectator watching what God is doing. Because the thing is, God is on the move. God wants to save people in the UK. God wants to save people in Worcester. God is not just interested in saving people in South America, though there are revivals taking place in South America. God is not just interested in saving people in, in Africa, although there are revivals taking place in African nations. God is in... God desires that no one perishes but that all are saved and come to the knowledge of the truth that's in scripture and so we need to get ready because although we are somewhat of a spectator because God does the work and Paul seeing his glimpse of revival was observing people were coming to faith that actually he had no input with the reality is, is that we will sometimes have a little bit of input along the way. But we need to think, God, what do I do? The second point that I want to make out of this passage is the second verse where, he, where Jesus says, he told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field, go. And in some ways, we have to be the answer to our own prayer there. And it's, it's interesting because where Jesus says there, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out, the word is a little bit more dramatic than that in the Greek because it's the same word that Jesus used. We said, if I, by the finger of God, cast out or drive out demons, then the kingdom of God is upon you. It's the same word. And so God is said, Jesus is saying, look, ask the Lord of the harvest to cast out, to propel out, to eject out workers into the harvest field sometimes because the workers are a little bit comfortable the workers perhaps like where they are and yet Jesus says no pray for the Lord of the harvest to cast out workers because in the early church Jesus said look go preach the gospel Jerusalem Judea Samaria uttermost parts of the earth fantastic things happened in the Jerusalem church but they didn't get much further than Jerusalem they didn't get too much farther into Judea, and they certainly didn't touch Samaria in the ends of the earth. What happened? Stephen was stoned, great persecution happened, and suddenly the believers were scattered, and they gossiped the gospel everywhere they went. Believe it or not, that was Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. Who thinks that someone somewhere was praying that the Lord of the harvest would cast out and drive out workers into his harvest field? You think, ooh, would God really do that? book of Acts. Now, the second point is because Jesus says go, obedience is success. 
Now, we are very much in a performance-related culture, and we can kind of judge ourselves on what other people do and what we think we should be doing and the results and all that kind of thing. Let me tell you this. Jesus is very much more concerned with your obedience. Many of you will know Wendy Mann or know of Wendy Mann. She was kind of quite prominent at the Catalyst Festival. And uh, Wendy felt very much to go and share a prophetic word with a guy sat on a park bench and to pray for him to be healed. And so you can, the, the kind of thought in your head is, God said this to me, I'm pretty sure it's God, I'm going to have a go, therefore something's going to happen. Complete and total rebuff. Complete, total, not interested. And Wendy was a bit taken aback by that, thinking like, God, I'm sure it was you. You told me to go along and share this, asked the guy for me to pray for him, and he totally blew me off. And as she's walking down the path in the park, she heard this tumultuous round of applause. And she kind of stopped. She said, what is that? And she felt the Spirit say, that's the angels applauding. And he said, well, why? He said, you were obedient. Because the thing is, often God is interested in, will you do what he asks you to do? Not the outcome. Because if God wants you to tell the gospel to someone and they don't respond, that's not your problem. You've discharged your obligation. You've done what you were asked to do. And also, the other thing is, there's a, I heard the story, I think it's something that Jim shared once, where there was a guy, and I think he might have been in a restaurant, where three people had come in, in a row, asking if they could pray for him to be healed. And the first one came in, and he rebuffed them. Second one came in, he rebuffed them. Now, these were both people who presumably felt led by the Spirit to go in and ask this guy if they could pray for him for healing. And the first two probably wandered off thinking, well, what was all that about, God? The third one went in, and the guy said, do you know what? You are the third person who's come up and said, I'm a Christian, and I believe God spoke to me, and he wants to heal you. You may as well pray for me. Lo and behold, he was prayed for, and he got healed. Now, that's an interesting story, because, of course, the first two people might have been having a little bit of a hard time theologically for a couple of days, thinking, yeah, but God, you told me, and nothing happened. And blah, blah, blah. Whereas the third person is totally cock-a-hoop, thinking, yay, God spoke to me, and I went in, and we saw someone healed, and yay, the kingdom of God is coming. And sometimes, because we don't necessarily see all the things that God's doing, we don't see God's perspective, we can be in the theological doldrums rather than... But yet, obedience is success. Mike Pilavarchi, who will appear behind me, well, not Mike Pilavarchi, but a slide. <laughs> Mike Pilavarchi says this I can't make someone fall in love with Jesus, but I can set up the first date. Now, you see, I don't actually like the phrase falling in love with Jesus, but kind of. I like the point that he's making. You can't make anyone turn and follow Jesus, but you can make the most of every opportunity. The um, next point is show courage. You could be forgiven for feeling a little bit nervous and even while I'm 
preaching, you're kind of, some of you might be thinking, yeah, but it's all right for you. You're an evangelist. You're loud. You're kind of, oh, I'm not like you. And oh, the thing is, do you know how many times I've got the brush off because smart aleck evangelists tell us we have to go and talk to people? Oh. The thing is, Jesus says this, I am sending you like lambs among wolves. Now, I know that's a metaphor. He's saying I'm sending you like lambs among wolves. But just imagine for a moment that you are a lamb. And instead of saying, right, it's a nice sunny day, we're going to have a fire drill and you're going to go out onto the tennis court. I'm going to say, okay, you're just going to go out of the different doors in your lamb costume because you are a lamb and there's going to be a horde of ravenous wolves outside. You could be forgiven for feeling a little bit nervous. And Jesus did say, actually, people will hate you, they will despise you, they will reject you because of me. But it's okay, you're blessed, because they did the same thing to me. Guys, we're in good company. But the fact is, I mean, let's put it this way. Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle, incredible contribution to the New Testament and the early church. Would you like to have met him when he was breathing threats and looking after the coats when Stephen was being stoned and looking to put Christians in prison? In fact, even when he got converted, the church weren't keen on having him there meeting. Barnabas had to go along and introduce him and speak for him and recommend him. Because they'd all thought, no, Saul of Tarsus, we've heard of him. He'll be infiltrating our meeting and next thing you know, we're off in the clink. But Jesus encourages us to show courage. Because all exploits for God are the other side of your courage crisis. Now, I'm going to quote an example, but just please shelve for a moment your theological preferences one way or the other on this. Some of you may or may not have read The Shack. Some of you may or may not have liked The Shack, and I suspect if we took a show of hands, some of you would love it, some of you would hate it. It's also been made into a film. Some of you will quite proudly say, I haven't been to see that, and nor am I going to see it. Others of you won't, yeah, brilliant film. Now, a friend of a friend went to see the shack. And he was just sat in his seat. And he felt the Holy Spirit speak to him, saying, you need to offer to pray for people at the end of this film. Now, that's a pretty kind of courageous thing. I would have a dialogue with God about that. I would start thinking, do you know what? Been under a bit of pressure lately. Ah, I'm probably not hearing God very well lately. I need, a, I need a bit of a confidence boost and I sit down with the elders just to kind of pep me up. That isn't God. Blow me if the young lad did not, at the point that, the, that he figured, I'm going to leave it till kind of the, the lights start dimming. And at the point that the lights started dimming, he stood up and said, I'd just like you to know this is a film about God. I'm a Christian. I know God. If any of you are stirred by this film and you would like to know more about God, come and chat to me afterward. And then the film didn't start for ages. <laughs> but at the end of the film, 
a woman came up to him in tears saying, I need to know God, can you help me? Interesting that, isn't it? Now, I would bet my eye teeth that most of us would die for a story like that. Well, not die, we'd possibly kill for a story like that, but you know, we, 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 we would certainly, we'd love a story like that, wouldn't we? The trouble is you only get a story like that by the Holy Spirit nudging you and then standing up and appearing to be a total idiot in front of a cinema full of people. And you might think, oh, I could never do that. Why not? Same God. Fourth thing, partner with people of peace. So Jesus says, when you go into a town, look out for people of peace. Because, there we go. So, or people who promote peace, if you prefer the NIV version. Now the thing is, although I've said that Jesus quite rightly said that blessed are you when people falsely accuse you, persecute you, and hate you, and despise you, and revile you because of me, because they did the same thing to me. He also said, when you're going to say the king is coming, there will be people who will be open. There will be people that God is working on. Because not only has the king come, the king is coming because God is on the move in our nation, but also God is on the move and the king is coming because Jesus is coming back. You see, we don't talk a huge amount about the second coming these days. It's been ages since I've heard a sermon on the second coming. Now, you can take me aside and say that's because you've been preaching here, there and everywhere and you're hardly ever here. We had one about four weeks ago, in which case I humbly apologize. However, I don't often hear sermons on the second coming. To my fault, I don't often preach them. However, Jesus is coming again. Time is short. Time, I mean, some people say, look, do you think, I mean, when I, when I, was, at, when I was at university, we used to have these little discussions, but do you think this is the final generation? Do you think Jesus will come back in our lifetime? Until one day somebody said to me, for you, it is the final generation. You only get one. We either go to the grave and meet Jesus, or alternatively, Jesus comes back. It might be in another generation, it might be in this. I don't know. But the fact is, the king is coming. Now, there are people that God is working on. Now, I could spend all morning talking about this, but essentially, you are looking, this is not about, this, this bit is not about trying to convince skeptics. This is not about arguing with people who are really opposed to what we believe. This is about looking for people that God is working on. And these will, really what you're looking for in a person of peace is people who will welcome you. People who are open to you. People who listen to you. People who are prepared to share about their life with you, and I don't just mean kind of peripheral stuff, they start getting into really deep stuff. And there are people who want to serve you. Look out for people like that and be praying to say, God, is this a person of peace? 
Can I in some way minister the peace of God into this person, into this household? Can I see you move? Be on the lookout and partner with people of peace. They are out there. And you may turn around and say, yeah, but you don't know where I work. You don't know where I live. You don't know the kind of people that I know. You don't, you just don't know. Look, Jesus didn't say this, pray for a good harvest. He said the harvest is plentiful. That says that the Holy Spirit is working in the hearts and lives of people out there. Charles, we just don't know who they are. He says the harvest is plentiful. Jesus is saying the problem is not with the harvest. The problem is with the reluctance of the workers. Pray therefore for the Lord of the harvest to send out, cast out, drive out workers into his harvest field. And when Jesus is saying to his 72 people, keep an eye out for people of peace. But look, if somebody rejects you, move on, shake the dust off your feet. The implication therefore is that there have to be people of peace out there. They are there. If it's in the scripture, they are there. And I would encourage you, be alert, not just because Britain needs alerts, but be alert because there are people of peace out there. Keep an eye out for them. Keep an eye out for them. Partner with them. Befriend them. Work with them. Serve them. Love them. And finally, look for an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Because fundamentally, and I, I fully endorse what, and I think it might have been Francis of Assisi, though people do say, um, it was Augustine, said, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. We preach the gospel in word, we preach the gospel with sign, we preach the gospel with deed. But we do need to share the gospel with people. But we should also be expecting God's power. Because Jesus also says here in the fifth point that when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what's offered to you, heal the sick who are there. Now, again, you could turn around to me and we're putting the loudness and the fatness and all that kind of stuff to one side. If I were, a lot of people said, you know, we're so encouraged by some of the stories of healing that you've shared. And believe me, I have seen shed loads of people healed. Now, I don't say that to impress you. And that's kind of like blind, deaf, kind of multiple sclerosis kind of stuff, not just I've got a minor backache. Now, that is not to kind of be a little bit cocky and to kind of show off or to impress you, but to impress upon you, God is in the healing business. God does not look at someone with multiple sclerosis or who is blind or who is deaf or whatever and think, oh, couldn't you have just brought me a headache? That is just hard work. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Because let me tell you, the issue with me in terms of seeing a blind person healed was not up there, it was in here. And in here. Because sooner or later, you're going to have to cross that threshold. Now you could say to me, yeah, but it's all right for you. You have a gift of healing. Now, healing might be one of my strong suits that I can move in, but that's partly because... The preaching of the gospel is accompanied by demonstrations of signs of the kingdom. And signs of the gospel, the sick are healed, the dead are raised. Still believe me for that one. That's, that's, my own, that's one of my bridges that I've got to cross sometime. But there is a personal sense that if God is sending us, the spiritual gift you need 
equipped as a soldier of Jesus Christ is the gift you need at that moment. Because if you're in a situation where you need, if you're in a desert, you need the desert outfit, don't you? You don't need the kind of jungle camouflage kit. You'll stand out a mile and you'll swelter. If you're in the kind of green and leafy jungles, you need the camouflage kit. You need the waterproofs. Do you think God is kind of up there thinking now, John Davidson, right, I'm going to send him to share Jesus with somebody who is severely ill. Let's give him the gift of encouragement. He'll enjoy that person in the wheelchair. They'll be very encouraged when John shares the gospel with them. And then angels watch this. I'm going to get John to pray for him and it's going to be a total flunk. (laughs) Do you think God's like that? No. Because Jesus said, look, when you ask your father for a fish, now look, you're evil. You give your sons, when they ask you for a fish, you give them a fish. You don't think, right, where's the the fish and chip paper? paper? Let's wrap a a cobra up in it. (laughs) God doesn't do that. God gives you what you need in the situation. You're soldiers of Christ, you're heralds of Christ. He gives you what you need for the situation that you have and the person that you have in front of you. Because I am slightly more disposed to the spirit, to the um, theological interpretation on gifts of the spirit, that actually you have the spirit and he'll give you whatever gifts you need at that time. Rather than being slotted into, well, I speak in tongues, I interpret, I prophesy. Oh, I heal, I do this. Now, there are some kind of strong suits that you'll probably lean more into, but look at it more that you cultivate fellowship and relationship with the Holy Spirit and he'll give you what you need in any given situation. Expect God's power. And then finally, I kind of hinted at it before, we do actually need to be expecting to lead people to Jesus. See, it's not just about healing the sick who are there, though I have to say miracles are not the be-all and end-all. Jesus healed a lot of people. They did not turn and follow him. In fact, some of his miracles got him into a lot of trouble. That doesn't mean to say we shouldn't do miracles. But they aren't necessarily the be-all and end-all. Neither is loving, neither is serving. I mean, it's great to do, and... We love unreservedly because God loves unconditionally. Grace is unconditional. It's free. It's unmerited. And it's given to those who will respond to the gospel and those who won't. However, we do need to be available to give an account of the hope that we have. So that if necessary, we can tell them the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now... I'm just going to ask you a little bit of a question, not to put you on the spot, but I just want to kind of get your mind thinking a little bit. If somebody were to turn to you in the meeting and say, what he's talking about, personal relationship with Jesus, I haven't got one of those, how do I get one? If your response is, let me just take you up the front, you can have a word with Jim, or I'll introduce you to Martin, or I'll introduce you to John, or I'll introduce you to John or to Debbie, a little bit of a hint. That's the wrong answer. Because I'm kind of naive enough to think that if in the Acts of the Apostles, Peter was walking down the street and that people were dragging the sick out so that his shadow would fall on them, and that suddenly he comes across a, a beggar at the gate, beautiful, heals him, 
And suddenly he's got a crowd. What does he do? John, uh, how au fait are you with the four spiritual laws, mate? Have you got one of those tracks that Jesus gave us when we went around those towns in, in Judea? Have you got one? You haven't got one? Oh, blow. What are we going to do? Um, it says that Peter stood up and he said, Look, men of Jerusalem, why do you look at us as if by our own power of godliness we made this person walk? No, it was by the name of Jesus that you persecuted. It's his power that's made this man walk. That's fighting talk. But the thing is, Peter, he kind of knew his gospel. Now, he wasn't intellectual. He wasn't thick either, but he wasn't intellectual. And I think sometimes we're in danger of drifting into this kind of intellectual thing of kind of, yeah, we like theology, nothing wrong with intellect, nothing wrong because God makes some people clever. Let me tell you, I was treated by a doctor last year. I was glad God made him clever. <laughs> but when the Pharisees and the rulers of the Jews were observing the disciples, they didn't say, do you know what? These guys are really bright. It, they took note of them and said, do you know what? These are unschooled people, but they've been with Jesus. Do you know what? I would rather people look at me and think, do you know, he's quite clever, isn't he? Hides it well, but he's quite clever. I don't want people to think that as much as, do you know? He knows Jesus. Because ultimately, it's the anointing that breaks the yoke. It's Jesus that breaks the yoke, and it's Jesus in you that will set people free. But we need to know the essence of what do we do to help someone on the way? Came across an interesting quote, which I put on the next slide. It says this, a person's coming to Christ is like a chain with many links. There is the first link, middle link, and a last link. There are many influences and conversations that precede a person's decision to convert to Christ. I know the joy of being the first link at times, a middle link usually, and occasionally the last link. God has not called me to only be the last link. He has called me to be faithful and to love all people. Because essentially, we can get quite hung up on how many people have you led to the Lord? How many people have you seen converted? But actually, it's a journey. And it doesn't matter whether you're involved in the first part of that journey with someone, the middle part, or the last part. As an evangelist, if I've seen a number of people come to faith, you can, there's a kind of, People look at you and think, yeah, you're good at that. But actually, you're good at what you do. And it may be the first link, it may be the middle link, it may be the last link. However God uses you, that's great, that's okay. I'm going to close with a final story, and then you'll see why all the first letters of the points have been put up in red. This is a Harper story. John Harper, I don't think you're related, but I thought, there we go, it's a good name. Yeah, the, um, the end date might give you a clue. This is John Harper with his wife and his daughter. John Harper married in 1903. They had a young girl a couple of years later, and then his wife died, so he was sadly widowed. John Harper was a Glasgow pastor, um, known as a powerful preacher of the gospel. And um, he got invited, he went out to the Moody Church in, in, in the States, and they asked him back. And they paid for his passage, and he was originally going to sail on one boat. And um, the schedule got changed, so he got sent on another boat. And at a public meeting that he was in in Glasgow, somebody prophesied over him and said, I feel a sense of foreboding about your journey. And uh, John Harper replied, I feel that God has sent me anyway. So he boarded the Titanic in Southampton. 
and uh, was, uh, was seen on one evening sharing with a young deckhand, encouraging him to believe in Jesus. I then looked across and saw the, the sun going down and said, it will be beautiful in the morning. Overnight, the ship struck an iceberg. John Harper went to get his eight-year-old daughter, woke her up, put a life belt on her, took her with his niece who was traveling with them, and entrusted them to a senior deckhand to put them on a lifeboat, kissed his daughter goodbye, and prayed a blessing over, and was then seen on multiple occasions by survivors going round different people, encouraging them, how is it with your soul? That isn't a question we might ask these days, but in 1912, you might phrase it like that. And John Harper went round people saying, comforting people, praying with them, and saying, are you saved? And as the ship began to go down, he went up to one man, grabbed him by the shoulders and said, are you saved? And the man said, I don't believe I am. So John Harper took off his life belt, gave it to him and said, you need this more than I do. John Harper was observed going around sharing the gospel with anybody. Now, we might be a little bit peeved. Some of us might think, God, why did you put me on this boat? John Harper knew why he was on that boat. And there's a, a man who, several months after that, stood up and gave his testimony in the church in Canada. And he said, as I was float, grabbing hold of a piece of floating wood, a Scotsman, John Harper, came past me and he said, are you saved? And he said, no, I am not. And John Harper said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then the waves took him away. And then he said, blow me, but he didn't say blow me, it was 1912, he probably wouldn't say that, but you get the vernacular. He said, and then by chance, the waves brought him back again. And he said to me, man, are you saved? And he said, no, I'm still not saved. And he said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And he said, then he sank below the water. And in his testimony, he said, there in the stillness of the night with two miles of water underneath me, I gave my life to Jesus. I am John Harper's last convert. John Harper knew what it was to be sent out into the harvest field. God might not require quite that degree of commitment to us, if you could put up the last slide, you'll see why I've highlighted the first letters of every point as they are. Because Paul said this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, we're here. We want to see more people come to know you. So we're asking you, Lord, you've said the fields are ripe and white for harvest. Pray for workers. Lord, we pray for workers and we offer ourselves to be sent out into your harvest field in your name. Amen. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. That was